This is Antonio Falco from San Francisco, California, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on, by spreading the word, by recommending California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are about 21 or 22 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to most of those episodes as well. This week, I'd like to thank Raquel Y., Kevin H., Renee C., and Justine F. for supporting the show. If you would like to make a one-time donation because Patreon's not your thing, you can do so through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again for all of your support. Dreamers, if you hearken back all the way to episode 10, entitled The Tale of Sisterly Love, where we told the story of identical twin sisters, Gina and Sunny Han, we talked about Gina, who had somewhat of a troubled life leading up to what ended up happening. Though her sister Sunny hadn't been doing all that great either, Gina had put together a plot to have her sister killed in order to steal her identity. Her plan was foiled basically because she hired a couple of idiots to help her carry out her plot. Gina ended up going on trial for the attempt on her sister's life and was subsequently convicted and sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. But Gina ended up serving 20 years and was paroled in May of 2018. Well, in that episode, I talked about the act of one sibling killing another sibling which is known as fratricide. I had always felt it was one of the more uncommon types of cases that we find out there. I've seen some episodes of Dateline or 48 Hours or whatever where an act of fratricide takes place. I remember one really intriguing case out of Georgia involving two brothers. I ought to tell you the story sometime. It has all the makings of such a scandalous story. There was another case, and I can't exactly remember all the details of it right now, but it was like this group of siblings that plotted against one of their brothers who they wanted to X out of the family business or inheritance or something like that. 
I can't think of it off the top of my head, but if it comes to me, I'll come back to it. And if you know, message me or post it in the group. But I ran across the story I'm sharing with you today, and it blows all of them out of the water when I read some of the details. I almost backed away from it because I thought perhaps too many of you may have heard this story before. But then again, I don't know if it made any type of major waves outside of the San Francisco area. Whatever the case, we're going to make waves with this tantalizing story that involves sex, drugs, and fratricide. In this 98th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the legendary Mitchell Brothers. Brothers. Whether or not you're familiar with the Bible or find yourself to be interested in its writings, you may be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, the first and second sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer and his younger brother Abel was a skilled shepherd who tended to the family's livestock. Both Cain and Abel would take things from which they produced and made sacrifices to God and thanked him. Cain sacrificed some produce that he grew from the land, and Abel sacrificed his firstborn sheep. But God favored younger brother Abel's offering because it came from the best that Abel had to give him, while Cain's sacrifices were less than his best. This made Cain extremely jealous of Abel, and angered, he lured him into a field where he killed him with a rock. God called out to Cain and asked him what happened, but Cain told lies about killing Abel, so he was punished by God. He would no longer be allowed to grow crops and was exiled to the land of Nod, left to wander east of Eden for the rest of his life, though God did promise Cain that nobody would kill him. According to the book of Genesis, this would make Cain the firstborn, Abel the first to die, and Cain the first to murder and the originator of evil, violence, and greed. The story contains themes involving sibling rivalry and allowing sins to lead one to destructive behaviors. Like the story behind Cain and Abel, the brothers in our story today allowed for life's excesses lead not just one, but both of them down a self-destructive path. But there is nothing biblical about their tale, not in the least. James Lloyd Mitchell, Jim for short, was born November 30, 1943, in Petaluma, California. And brother Artie J. Mitchell was born December 17, 1945, in Lodi, California. Though a little more than two years apart in age, they looked so much alike that people often mistook them for twins, especially when they grew older and evened up in size. Their father, Robert, was originally from Oklahoma and was a professional gambler by trade. And him, along with his wife, Georgia May, ended up settling down in Antioch, California, located in the eastern part of the San Francisco Bay Area. Because I mentioned fratricide in the beginning of this episode... You've probably put two and two together because my dreamers are that astute. That one of the Mitchell brothers, at some point in the story, is going to kill the other. That in and of itself makes this story unusual. 
Beyond that, this isn't just one of those murder stories that's cut and dry and to the point. I mean, every murder story has some details in the background that makes each of them unique, but we can't possibly know or hear about all of them. And some of them just have all these aspects about them that make them stand out in our minds. Stories that leave an impression on us. Especially if you are from the area where it all took place. So when you see a murder that involves a side of drugs along with the serving of adult entertainment, it might just start catching your attention. I'm not going to lie, I'm totally guilty of that. I'm attracted to the scandalous and salacious stories, just like the big cases, the unique cases, and all the ones in between. I'm all over the place with these stories. You see, by the time Jim and Artie were 20-somethings, together they had built a multi-million dollar adult entertainment empire. And it all started with the July 4th, 1969 grand opening of the O'Farrell Theater. It was a venue unlike anything before it in that it was an amalgamation of movies and stage shows all in one. The Los Angeles Times nicknamed it the Carnegie Hall of Sex and the Temple of Sleaze. In their office upstairs, there were no desks or filing cabinets, nothing you'd find in what I envision in my mind what a late 60s office might look like complete with maybe a typewriter, an adding machine, a rotor dial phone, maybe one of those little Rolodex things. No, not the Mitchell brothers. Their office had a fully stocked bar, a Wurlitzer jukebox, a gun rack mounted on the wall alongside a moose head. Their enterprise would peak at 11 theaters, mostly in Northern California, with two locations in Southern California. They also operated a movie and video production company as well. For more than 20 years, the Mitchell brothers dominated the adult entertainment industry. They were very well known and popular in their community, and they were virtually inseparable Yet they had a knack for balancing their lives in this business while advocating for causes such as saving the whales, halting deforestation in the rainforests, AIDS and HIV research and charities. They had their run-ins with the law, and they were often embroiled in legal battles involving their various theaters against people not wanting them in their neighborhoods. Times were more conservative then, and the Mitchells spent thousands of dollars a year defending themselves and their businesses. They just had this way about them that conveyed not so much an air of being nasty, but rather just being a little bit naughty. But San Francisco had always been a little bit more easygoing, and they were, for the most part, considered to be a pretty respectable pair of guys, despite the salacious nature of the business. Remember, these were different times, so to be able to pull that off made the Mitchell brothers the exception, and it made them very rich. Prior to opening the O'Farrell Theater, the brothers, using their background in filmmaking, began producing and selling 15-minute-long adult films, 
which people could pay a quarter per minute to view in small arcade-style venues. Eventually, they wanted to get into making longer feature films, so they converted an old Pontiac dealership located on the corner of O'Farrell and Polk Streets in San Francisco. They constructed a soundstage to film on, as well as implemented seating for a movie theater so they could show the films that they were producing there too. And then they began making 30 to 60 minute films that were being shown at the new O'Farrell Theater. Less than a month later, Jim, who was still studying filmmaking at the University of San Francisco, was arrested at the theater and charged with production and exhibition of obscene material. Both brothers immediately went to the media and promised that they were going to fight this and hired a tenacious attorney named Michael John Kennedy. Citing their First Amendment rights, the brothers continued to defy orders to stop showing their films. They continued to do so, despite both of them being placed under arrest dozens and dozens of times over the course of the ensuing year leading up to the trial, by which time had turned into a media circus. After a somewhat lengthy trial, the jury came back deadlocked, and with that, the Mitchell brothers skated. Their attorney believed that in not censoring explicit adult films, it set an important precedent in protecting all other forms of art and literature from censorship. In 1972, the Mitchell brothers premiered their first feature-length adult film at the O'Farrell Theater, entitled Behind the Green Door. Because the stigma of sex in more mainstream films had been disintegrating, they decided to put more time, effort, and money into making the film. And they were considered to have hit marketing gold with the genius idea to cast a popular model named Marilyn Chambers, best known for a wholesome picture of her holding a baby on a box of laundry detergent called Ivory Snow, and she was only 19 years old at the time. Now, while I was researching this rumors, I did not look up the box of ivory snow detergent just to, it wasn't really an important detail, but in a funny coincidence, as I was watching the most recent season of Stranger Things, there's a scene where Winona Ryder's character Joyce was at the store that she works at, and you can see boxes of this detergent sitting there on the shelf behind her. So you don't have to look it up. Just watch Stranger Things, Episode 1, Season 3, and you'll see Marilyn right there on the box. So the total cost of producing the film was about $60,000, and it brought in about $2 million in its first year. Later, it became the second highest grossing adult film of all time, having reached the $50 million mark. Once the Mitchells were bona fide millionaires... That's when they opened up the next 10 adult theaters, as well as transitioning their flagship theater, the O'Farrell, into an adult entertainment nightclub. And then, in the mid-70s, along came the invention of the video cassette recorder, also known as a VCR. I shudder to think if any of you listening don't know what a VCR is, 
If that's the case, I'm thinking you are far too young to be listening to this and you need to go find your mom and dad. And along with the VCR came video stores. And you know, if you're looking for adult films, it became very easy to go rent a video or two and enjoy it in the comfort of your own home and for a lot cheaper. As a result of that, the demand for the public adult film screenings tanked and the Mitchell brothers needed to regroup if they wanted to stay on the cutting edge of adult entertainment. After a little bit of research, they decided to venture into the customer contact model of live shows in bars and nightclubs. They quickly premiered three brand new rooms at the O'Farrell, the Ultra Room, the Copenhagen, and New York Live. The Ultra Room featured live shows involving lesbian bondage. The stage was constructed at floor level, which was encircled by 30 small booths with glass partitions separating the performers from the customers. Eventually, the glass was removed in order to allow for customers and entertainers to have direct contact. And for $10 per customer, they can enjoy a half-hour show. The Copenhagen was a smaller room that had seating along the perimeter of the room. And that live show involved a routine by two naked women who would either perform in front of the customers or in their laps. The most successful room was New York Live, which included a stage with theater-style seating on three sides. Exotic dancers performed a set of three songs, and the last song the performers would be fully nude. Other exotic dancers who were not on stage would entertain customers around the room and sit naked on their laps in exchange for tips, and thus was born the term lap dancing. The demand for lap dances became so high that the pioneers of the lap dance, the Mitchell brothers, hired dancers as fast as they could. And this catapulted them into international fame and brought in way more money than their film business ever did. And as I had touched on earlier, the Mitchell brothers had been able to successfully fend off prosecution involving the obscenity in their filmmaking by way of the First Amendment of the Constitution. But once they began offering customer contact live shows, it brought about a new set of problems from the legal system as to whether or not it was legal to give lap dances and if the exotic dancers had the right to do so. And then prominent politician Dianne Feinstein became the mayor of San Francisco following George Mascone's assassination along with Harvey Milk, elected to the Board of Supervisors, which, of course, made Milk the very first openly gay politician to be elected to any office in the United States and is a story I intend to cover at a later date. But when Dianne Feinstein became mayor, she had been very vocal against the adult entertainment industry. And once she ascended to mayor she was clear that she intended to work in conjunction with the district attorney to aggressively prosecute obscenity cases, and she had the Mitchell brothers in her sights. In July of 1980, just under a year after Feinstein took office as San Francisco's mayor, the O'Farrell Theater was raided. The arrest included 14 customers, six performers, and seven theater employees, 
All were charged with crimes related to sex work. The first of phase trials were three of the dancers. Two would end in hung juries and one was convicted. She would be the only dancer to ever be convicted of any crime related to her work at the O'Farrell Theater. Though she never served any time for her conviction, nor would she find any money. For the next trials, the Mitchells hired the former partner of their old attorney, Michael Kennedy, a man named Dennis Roberts. He came up with a way to throw a monkey wrench into all the other cases that were still pending, stemming from that raid. He wanted to implement an obscure statute called the First Offender Diversion Program. This would enable all of those who were arrested in that raid as first-time offenders to enter a guilty plea complete the diversion program, and come out the other end with a clean record. When Roberts brought this up in court, the prosecutor yelled that he can't do that. But the judge was like, hold up, uh, yes he can. Which is what happened, and nobody else busted in that raid would be made to face prosecution. By the mid-80s, the Mitchell brothers reached an agreement with the DA in which they agreed to ensure that the performers wore a minimal amount of clothing while working at the O'Farrell Theater. Feinstein made one last-ditch effort to try and prosecute the goings-on at the O'Farrell in February of 1985 when it was raided by about a dozen officers during an appearance by Marilyn Chambers, the one who starred in the brothers' first feature-length X-rated film, and they took her into custody. But the DA refused to press charges, and a judge refused to issue an injunction against the Mitchell brothers. The police department had been going through some scandals of their own during that time, including an incident involving a recent police academy graduate receiving oral sex from a sex worker at a graduation party. On top of that, a local journalist who had recently published a scathing article critical of the San Francisco Police Department was arrested in retaliation for that article for, of all things, walking his dog without a leash. So on the heels of the most recent raid on the O'Farrell and the scandals that rocked the department, the city's board of supervisors revoked the department's power to license adult entertainment venues and ordered that the Mitchell brothers be paid $14,000 in damages as a result of the raid. Over the years, Jim and Artie Mitchell found themselves as defendants in court more than 200 times, all of them related to obscenity charges and related crimes, and almost all of them, they came away victorious. And as complicated and costly as their public lives were, so were the private lives of Jim and Artie Mitchell, if not more so. Both had been married and divorced two times over, and between them, they had nine children. At least, there could have been more. Over time, Artie, the younger of the two, emerged as quite the partier, some articles referring to him as Party Artie. Jim was the brains, the responsible one, the down-to-earth one. Artie had been described as much more flamboyant, outgoing, and social, and Jim was somewhat of an introvert, quiet and to himself. 
By the time Artie had turned 40, he had racked up his two divorces, fathered a total of six children, and had court battles of his own involving child support and child custody. And to add another layer, complicating things even more, Artie developed an unquenchable appetite for drinking, drugs, and sex involving sadomasochism. It all had come to head one night when, in a drunken rage, Artie had fired some shots through the ceiling of the O'Farrell Theater, leading him to having to be banned from the premises for a time. As Artie continued to spiral through a haze of drugs and alcohol, it only fueled his increasingly unstable and erratic behavior, which, of course, took its toll on the brother's ability to operate the business effectively. The evening of February 27, 1991, had been mostly uneventful for Artie and his then-live-in girlfriend, Julie Bajo, who had been living with Artie for about nine months by that time. According to Julie, just before 10 p.m. that night, the couple got ready for bed. She had taken off her makeup, brushed her teeth, and joined Artie, who was already getting ready to fall asleep. Nobody else was in the house. As they laid there, she and Artie talked a little bit about his desires to want to make some life changes. He told Julie that he felt as though he needed a break from everything to get away and find some peace, quiet, and rest. He had been at this business for 21 years and he really wanted six months to perhaps a year to himself. But then, about 10 to 15 minutes later, at approximately 10.15 p.m., the couple heard the front door open and then slam shut. Julie next described hearing the sounds of footsteps, as well as someone bumping into things as the intruder made his way through the home. Artie was one to never lock the front door of his home, she reported, as he always was the type of person who would say that his door was always open, and he meant it literally. If any of his friends ever needed a place to crash in the middle of the night, they knew his place was available, and they'd have no trouble getting in. But this person coming through the house to Julie had a hostile feel to it. They both immediately got out of bed, and Artie turned on a light. Julie took cover in a closet and saw nothing that was about to occur after that. What would happen next would be fiercely debated because nobody other than Artie and the person he was about to come face to face with would see what actually happened and one of them would wind up dead. Artie hurriedly slipped on a pair of pants and Julie heard him say, What's going on? Who's out there? And she said his voice was a volume louder than his normal speaking voice but not quite yelling. Artie walked out of the bedroom and into the hallway, headed towards the front of the home. In doing so, he was met with a barrage of gunfire. Eight shots were fired. Four of them found Artie. One in the abdomen, one in the shoulder, one grazed his shoulder, and the one that killed him entered into his right eye, coming to rest into his brain. Artie crumpled to the ground, having fallen in the doorway of his bathroom. From the closet, Julie had reached over to the nightstand, grabbed the phone, retreated back into her hiding place, and dialed 911. 
Julie began to explain that she was hiding in a closet and was hearing noises coming from inside the house. Suddenly, she started screaming, saying that there were shots being fired inside the house, and the 911 recording picked up all of this. Paramedics arrived at the scene, but there was nothing that could be done. Artie Mitchell was dead. He was 45 years old. Officer Kent Haas and his partner, Officer Tom Paraspolo, had just finished up a traffic stop nearby and happened to be right near the street where Artie resided. They were literally just passing by as Julie's 911 call came into dispatch. As the officers pulled up, they parked a few houses down from the location of the call, and that's when they saw a man who appeared to be in his mid to late 40s walking down the street. He had an umbrella in his hand, which would not have been unusual being as it had been raining that evening. But the thing that stood out was the fact that the man was walking very stiffly, with a pronounced limp. Upon closer inspection, the officers noticed the butt of a rifle protruding from the man's pant leg, and there was absolutely nobody else around in the area. So they drew their guns and ordered Limping Umbrella Man to stop. But the man did not follow the officer's orders immediately, but instead, as quickly as he could with the rifle shoved down his pants, ducked behind a car and appeared to be tugging at the waistband of his pants. It appeared as if he was attempting to pull the rifle out. He had dropped his umbrella and there was a clear expression of desperation on his face as he frantically tried to get that gun out of his pants. Becoming even more nervous and fearing for their safety, the officers ordered him again to stop what he was doing and show his hands. Being unable to extract his gun from his trousers, the man did as he was told. He raised up his hands and surrendered. The officers approached the man and placed him in cuffs. When they searched him, they obviously quickly found the twenty-two rifle he had stuffed down his pants, but he also informed the officers that he was armed with a second weapon, a thirty-eight caliber revolver in a holster under his jacket. The suspect was none other than Jim Mitchell, the victim's own brother. And when the news broke within hours of the shooting, it sent shockwaves across San Francisco and the surrounding areas that Jim Mitchell allegedly shot and killed his own brother. The purveyors of adult entertainment, the pioneers of the industry, legends in the Bay Area. This story had it all. It was salacious, scandalous, and now murderous. You know that the media and the tabloids went into a feeding frenzy. As Jim was placed in the back of the patrol car, he said to the officers, I know I'm in trouble. I want a lawyer. From there, he would be held in Marin County Jail without bail, as he had been considered a serious flight risk because he had access to so much money from the business that he and his brother operated. So how is it that Jim decided to head over to his brother's house with two guns, only to end up putting four out of eight bullets fired into him. Well, according to Jim, it had been a long time coming. His brother's behavior had been out of control as it were, but in the days leading up to February 27th, he had really begun to spiral out of control. 
Apparently, Artie had been issuing death threats to numerous people, including his own ex-wife and Jim's girlfriend at the time. Jim also alleged that Artie called up their mother and threatened her as well. And according to Artie's ex-wife, Karen Hassall, she stated that Artie was vehemently against getting any kinds of help with his drug and alcohol abuse issues. He had resisted any and all attempts his family and friends made to try to persuade him into accepting treatment. In addition, he also exhibited some violent and angry outbursts when discussing it, saying he would rather die than check into any treatment programs. It was Jim Mitchell's claim that he went over to his brother's house that night to demand that he enter into a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program, as there had been several attempts in the preceding months to convince him that he needed to go. He said he brought his gun, or two guns as it were, in case he needed to defend himself. Not only that, he said when Artie emerged from his bedroom, it looked like he was holding a gun in his hand, so he fired his rifle. I read one report that it was seven shots and another that it was eight, but both reports indicated the same amount of times that Artie was struck, which was four. So right away, Jim has set himself up for a claim of self-defense. What this was going to come down to was this question, how culpable was he for Artie's death? What was going on in Jim's head at the time? And what was his state of mind? Was he in fear for his own safety? Well, he was the one who entered into his brother's home after 10 o'clock at night armed with a rifle and a handgun. Going into the house, all the lights out, either hearing or seeing his brother emerge from his bedroom after hurriedly slipping on a pair of pants. I mean, he's got the upper hand, as it were. Of course, it is possible for Artie to have emerged from his room holding a gun, but he was confronting an intruder. As it turned out, though, Artie didn't have a gun. His blood alcohol content was 0.25. He was in his own home. He had been drinking and he had gone to bed. So whether or not he had a gun, to me, it's irrelevant when it comes to whether or not Jim was afraid for his life because he was trespassing, essentially. Prosecutors were convinced that Artie's killing was a result of an ongoing dispute between the brothers in regards to the business and the direction it would be going in the future. In that motive, it was compounded by the fact that Artie was consumed with substance abuse issues and that undoubtedly was interfering with the business. You simply are not going to be capable of being an effective partner if all that mess is going on in the background. But when Jim was indicted on charges related to Artie's killing, even though the case seemed pretty open and shut to prosecutors, those who knew the Mitchell brothers, those who worked closely with them or were in their close inner circle of friends, they simply could not wrap their heads around this. None of it made any sense. Nobody seemed to feel as though there were any cracks in the relationship that were so bad that it would lead to murder. But Julie would go on to testify before the grand jury that she overheard Artie talking on the phone with someone at the O'Farrell Theater that if he wasn't going to be treated fairly, then he might F them up. She inferred that he was discussing some sort of business dispute. And this was going to be the crux of the prosecution's case. 
that Jim was sick and tired of his brother's antics and really just wanted to get him out of the way so he could operate the business on his own terms. But still, nobody who worked with the brothers ever sensed there was a hint of any kind of trouble between the two. And Jim's attorney quickly issued a statement on behalf of his client insisting that the prosecution had it all wrong. Even Artie's ex-wife, Karen, who was the mother of some of his kids, doesn't think the prosecution's theory fits. She had somewhat of an acrimonious post-divorce relationship with Artie, but they kept in contact on a regular basis for the sake of the children. Of course, over the years, however, because of Artie's alcohol and drug consumption, she grew increasingly more concerned. Artie had weekend visitations outlined by the court, so she was really worried when he had the kids with him. She was one of those who had encouraged him to get himself into rehab. Not only was his drug and alcohol use getting out of control, he was a guy who also liked to play with guns. I mentioned him having shot up the ceiling at the O'Farrell Theater. Well, he also had his gun forcibly taken away at an oyster house up the street from the theater and was asked not to come back there anymore either. So yeah, I wouldn't want to be sending my kids to spend the weekend with this guy. He seemed like a loose cannon based on what everyone has been describing thus far. And get this, Artie's condition had deteriorated so badly that the checks that he was writing were being rejected because his signature was so messed up, the bank returned them as forgeries. He was reaching a point where he was unable to take care of himself anymore. Marilyn Chambers in an interview said that if Jim hadn't shot Artie, she had no doubt that he would either die in a car crash and probably take out a bunch of innocent bystanders as well, or it would be an overdose or something completely and totally self-destructive would have ended Artie's life if Jim hadn't done what he did. Finally, Karen had had enough and obtained a restraining order on February 16, 1991, and that ordered that Artie's visitations be under court supervision only. Two days later, on the 18th, she called up Jim and told him that she felt like he needed to take some action, an intervention, but something right away needed to be done. But Jim, all he could say was he could see what he could do. Karen suspects that her request for his help may have been the thing that prompted him to go over to Artie's house nine days later on the 27th with those two weapons, though she could only speculate on that. But she's fairly certain that Jim went over to try to talk Artie into checking himself into rehab. She knew Jim loved his brother very much. They had always been so close and the best of friends. She would never believe he killed Artie to clear the way for him to take over sole proprietorship of the business that they built. So the prosecution was busy at work building their case against Jim for the killing of his brother. Because nobody saw what actually happened, investigators were pretty much going to have to piece together the sequence of events, including the order in which the bullets were fired, where they hit, and whether or not that evidence lines up with what Jim was telling them. And what his defense team was saying was that this was a tragic accident. But what they were finding at the scene wasn't exactly adding up to an accidental shooting. Firstly, the bullet holes at the scene of the shooting were closely grouped together, 
which was an indication that Jim was aiming when he started firing, not indicative of an accidental shooting. Secondly, in order to prove this, they needed to know what order the shots were fired, as well as the timing of the event itself. And in examining that aspect of the case, they had the 911 call that Julie made from the closet. At the beginning of the call, she is quiet, trying to whisper that someone is in the house. But within a matter of seconds, she began screaming that someone is shooting. And she repeated herself at least once, maybe twice. She can be heard screaming on the call, saying, oh my God, and becoming out of breath. In the background of the call, some low decibel popping sounds can be heard, along with some static-like sounds. So the tapes of the call were turned over to a forensic acoustician so he could analyze the tapes and the sounds that it captured, if it captured sounds of gunshots, and what the timing of the shots would be able to reveal to investigators. This was 1991, so the technology a forensic acoustician would be using at the time was going to be as state-of-the-art as it was going to get at the time. The audio of the 911 call was analyzed through a program that basically translates the sounds on the recording into a graphical representation of all the sounds that were captured, including the screams and the static. Whatever was going on during the phone call, that was loud enough to drown out the gunshots that are harder to hear in the background of the call. And also, Julia's ducked down low and in a closet, in the bedroom, at least some distance away from the hallway. The gunshots are going to be represented on the graph by a unique and distinctive sound wave pattern that distinguishes it from the other sounds in the audio recording. Regardless of the kind of weapon making the gunshot or the caliber size, the pattern characteristics will be different than the screams and the other sounds that overlap. The sound wave of a gunshot on the graph will be shaped sort of like a sideways funnel. There will be a long, flat, sharp side at the beginning of the sound wave that spikes in the moment the gunshot is recorded, and then it will taper off into a point. It's the very minuscule amount of time for that sound wave to actually take place that identifies it as a gunshot. But in order to figure out whether or not the gunshots came from a 22 caliber rifle, at the time investigators used to test fire the weapon at the crime scene, but shortly after Artie's death, the house was sold and no longer available to them in order to perform testing. But one of the investigators kind of felt like his own house was similar in layout and acoustics to Artie's, so he erected a makeshift firing range in his own house to try to mimic the sounds recorded on the 911 call. He placed a phone in a nearby room and took it off the receiver. And from there, the gunshots were recorded in the same manner, coming through the phone that was off the hook. Now, the results weren't exact, but the acoustics were similar enough for the analyst to believe that the weapon Jim was carrying in his pants was the weapon that made those sounds on the 911 call. This kind of seems a little extra, doesn't it? I mean, going through all this testing in order to prove that it was the gun when Jim was actually caught leaving the scene with it in his pants... Certainly, ballistics testing would have linked the weapon to the crime, and Jim pretty much admitted that he did the shooting by claiming that it was an accident. But the reason why identifying the gunshots on the audio recording was important 
was to be able to accurately lay out the time lapses between each gunshot. This would enable investigators to piece together what actually went down in order to be able to present their theory with solid evidence of a timeline, succession of gunshots, and how this proves their interpretation of the scene and or disproves Jim's version of what happened. The point is, is to make Jim out to be a liar. Only five of the gunshots were captured on the audio recording, as the other two, perhaps as many as three, were fired prior to 911 receiving the call and the recording commenced. The prosecution also needed to be able to present in their case the time between shots because they wanted to recreate what actually happened in that hallway in order to determine if they were looking at an accident or not. The trajectory of each shot was determined by using lasers. Then they analyzed the blood spatter as well as the shots that we recorded on the 911 call. All of these factors were going to be essential in recreating the scene. One of the first things they were able to determine was that Artie was standing up, as well as where he was standing when he was struck in the shoulder by one of the bullets. This was evidenced by the blood spatter, and where the bullet hit the wall, it directly lined up with the height of the shoulder shot. Next, they were able to determine that Jim, after he had gained entry into the home, began firing down the hallway towards Artie and Julie's closed bedroom door. The first shot hit the bedroom door on the right side close to the door jamb. The next shot hit the door close to the first hit, but the door was already in the beginning stages of being opened by Artie. As Artie entered into the hallway, the next bullet was fired and it hit the door jamb, ricocheted off that and continued into the bedroom and came to a rest on top of the dresser inside the room. Now Artie is still advancing forward towards the gunfire, which seems like an unnatural thing to do. I can only imagine this is because of one of two reasons. One being that he was intoxicated and disoriented and really wasn't putting together what was happening. Or the other being that he saw Jim and didn't think his life was in any real danger, thereby dismissing the fact that a gun is being fired inside the home. Whatever the case, Artie was not deterred by the sounds of gunshots in that moment that he stepped into the hallway. The next bullet struck Artie through the abdomen, went through and through, exiting out his back. It was this strike that the item he was carrying in his hand was dropped, which was the beer bottle. Its contents were still fizzing in the bottle and around the spill when first responders arrived on the scene to find him. Yeah, when he got out of bed to investigate the intruder, he grabbed his beer and took it with him, not his gun. Which may or may not bolster Jim's claim that he thought he saw Artie carrying a gun. And it's also a telling sign of Artie's state of mind when he went into the hallway. He thought it must have been someone he knew, or something non-threatening, Otherwise, he would have taken the beer grab time to make it the gun grab time instead. He was half right, though. The intruder was someone he knew very well, but it definitely was not non-threatening. Following this abdomen shot, Artie stepped into the bathroom. 
The next shot was fired through the bathroom wall and hit him in the shoulder for a second time. Then a period of 28 seconds elapsed where there were no shots captured on the 911 audio recording. The prosecution would zero in on this 28 seconds as a significant moment in the sequence of events. In the theory that they pieced together, it was during this time that Jim waited. He had not yet fired a shot that would have been immediately fatal, even though Artie had been shot three times at this point. None of them were rapidly fatal injuries. So this waiting would be the element that defined the shooting as a murder rather than an accident or any kind of act of self-defense. Based on the trajectory of the next bullet fired, the prosecution believed it was at this point Jim got down into a crouching or kneeling position in the hallway and took aim at the bathroom door and waited. 28 seconds after the shot that went through the bathroom wall and struck Artie in the shoulder, Artie poked his head out of the bathroom in order to peer down the hallway. And this is when the 911 audio recording picked up a fatal gunshot. This one having struck Artie in the right eye, tunneling through and into his brain. The final shot struck the hallway entrance door jam leading out of the bathroom. To the prosecution, this was no accident, based solely on the fact that Jim had taken aim in a deliberate attempt to kill his brother. He was subsequently charged with first-degree murder. The biggest hurdle for the prosecution's case, well, there were a couple of them. One was the fact that by all accounts, Artie and Jim were as close as brothers could be. They loved and cared about each other very much, and nobody disputes that. And that if Jim shot Artie, well, then it can be all attributed to Artie's own self-destructive behavior and Jim's misguided attempts at helping him. Another challenge was going to be explaining to a jury how the bullets went flying around that hallway and how it wasn't a wildly accidental scene, but something that was planned and premeditated. In order to illustrate the scene, prosecutors decided to recreate it in digital animation form. Today, this is not unheard of. As a matter of fact, it might be used pretty frequently nowadays in order to put a complicated crime scene into perspective for a jury. I know I'm a visual person as well, so when I'm listening to podcasts, I have a hard time envisioning the things that are being discussed, and I have to go look stuff up. So if I were on a jury, yeah, I'd like to see some visuals. But again, this is 1991, 28 years ago, and the animations that were going to be developed were somewhat rudimentary, at least by today's standards. But at the time, it was not only state-of-the-art technology, it had not been done before. But the point was to show angles and trajectory of the bullets despite the disjointedness of the recreation. Getting the animated recreation entered into evidence was going to be a challenge, as well as some of the other evidence the prosecution wanted to present. Jim's attorney said the animation should be omitted because it simply depicts elements that can only be guessed and speculated on because nobody knows exactly what happened. He also challenged the validity of the gunshot sound testing because it was not conducted at the actual crime scene. 
The judge would go on to rule in allowing the animation to be shown in court to the jury. And this ruling was historic. It was the first time forensic animated recreations of a crime scene would be presented in a murder case in the United States. Another obstacle for the prosecution was finding a motive for the killing. Why would Jim want to kill his own brother? They were very close, pretty much since childhood, through establishing themselves as cultural icons because of their adult entertainment empire, though admittedly, Artie's lifestyle, his drug and alcohol abuse, all that had become problematic for quite some time leading up to his death. Jim and Artie's mom and Jim's girlfriend testified that they had been receiving calls from Artie even up to the day of the killing and that they were out of control and threatening in nature. And what all of this was culminating in was Jim going over there, perhaps to confront Artie, maybe to talk to him, go force him into getting help, even possibly wanting to force him to do so by gunpoint. And things escalated to a point that the killing became a crime of passion, a heat of the moment kind of thing. That was going to make the difference between the first degree murder conviction versus a manslaughter conviction. And that would result in very, very different sentences if convicted. The prosecution told the court that the motive lay in Jim's inability to cope with his brother's out-of-control behavior. He was growing increasingly irresponsible, and he was becoming a burden and a threat to everyone, including their business. Now here I got another conflicting report about Jim and how he gained entry into the home. Remember I said earlier that Artie's girlfriend stated that he made a habit of leaving the front door open just in case someone needed a place to stay or wanted to come over any time, day or night. That he was a my doors always open kind of a guy, and he meant it in the literal sense. I also read another report, and I believe it was presented in court that the front door was kicked in. If that was the case, then that could have and should have been easily presented in court with pictures of a broken door. But then again, a door still could have been kicked in and broken, even if it was just shut and not locked. Either way, I do believe Artie leaving the door open is possible since his girlfriend did live there and probably knew Artie's habits and routines pretty well. And she may not have taken too much issue with it. I mean, I would have. Just a couple of days ago, there was a pretty big earthquake that shook a good portion of Southern California. While nothing was damaged at my place, the sliding glass door was sort of knocked off its track, and even though I could force it closed, it wouldn't lock. And I was nervous about that, and I called the maintenance person to try to get them there before the end of the day because I didn't want to go to bed again with the back door slightly ajar and unlocked. I know, I know, I have Fred and company, and yes, they will be out there at the slightest sound, but still... We don't have guns in the house. We have golf clubs. We have a hockey stick, but no gun. Which is why I speculate that Julie may have been okay with Artie's unlocked door policy because he had a gun or maybe more than one gun. But I also do believe that whether the door was locked or not, that Jim kicked it in because Julie said it sounded like someone was making bumping sounds 
I really don't know how much more noise he would have been making beyond the kicking in of the door as he made his way through the house. So once the shots were being fired at the door, Artie exited the bedroom and entered into the hallway. This is when he was shot through the shoulder and the abdomen, and then he stepped to the side and took cover in the bathroom, which was when the next shot was fired and went through the wall and struck him in the shoulder too, though I do not think that the bullet entered his shoulder as it was significantly slowed down by passing through the wall, and it's not really counted as a gunshot wound on Jim's body. So I'm thinking that this bullet either grazed him or ricocheted off of him in some manner. Now, if Jim had stopped shooting at this point, it was highly likely that Artie would have survived the attack. As Julie was already on the phone, help would have arrived in time to treat Artie. That's what makes the 28-second lapse between the shot through the bathroom wall and the shot through Artie's eye a critical point of deliberation on Jim's part. They believe that Jim kneeled and took aim and waited for his next clear opportunity, which came when Artie stuck his head out into the hallway. Jim took the shot, hitting Artie straight into his eye, killing him instantly. The beer bottle Artie dropped in the hallway also played a significant role in the defense's case that it did appear to Jim that Artie had a gun in his hand. But you know, this is Artie's house, and he is confronting an intruder, and the intruder is armed too. So I mean, even if all things were equal, which they weren't since Jim is the one breaking in, they're equally armed and equally within their rights to defend themselves, more so in Artie's case than Jim's since he's in his house. And it doesn't really matter anyway because he didn't have a gun. He had a beer. Jim's defense tried to suggest that Artie had a gun at some point during the whole thing, but no gun was found anywhere near Artie, so that really wasn't going to fly in Jim's case of self-defense. Almost a year later, on February 19, 1992, after two days of deliberations, Jim was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, as well as the lesser charges of brandishing a firearm and discharging a firearm inside a house. And with this verdict, it pretty much rejected both the prosecution's theory that this was a planned first-degree murder and the defense's argument that this was an accident, finding themselves believing it was something somewhere in the gray area in between. Facing as many as 11 years in prison, Jim's attorney saw the verdict as a win, in that his client wasn't found guilty of murdering his brother. Jim had taken the stand and tearfully described going to his brother's house to talk him into walking away from the drugs and alcohol that had been plaguing his life, to get into rehab, to get himself cleaned up. He said he loved his brother and that he wished it was him instead of Artie. When it came to sentencing, about a hundred people wrote letters to the court urging leniency and compassion for Jim, including the mayor and the sheriff of San Francisco. The mayor even having said that sending Jim to jail served no real purpose. He has ten children to help raise, his four and already six. But the judge did not feel that Jim's act deserved to go completely unpunished. 
so he sentenced him to six years in prison. He had been on bail for two years pending appeals, and he began serving his sentence in 1994 at San Quentin State Prison and was released after serving only three years in 1997. After Jim's release, he returned to the O'Farrell Theater and shortly thereafter established the Artie Fund, an effort to raise money for a local rehabilitation center, as well as the surf and rescue squad of the San Francisco Fire Department, as they had once saved Artie from drowning after he was caught in a riptide. Jim had swam out there too to try to help, but he too ended up needing rescuing. And I believe Artie also had initially swam out there to help two of his own kids that were caught up in that same riptide. But back to Artie's kids for a moment. Remember, I just mentioned that the San Francisco mayor said that Jim needed to be there for his kids and Artie's kids too. Well, not so fast. Once Jim got out of prison and established that fund, Artie's kids stepped in and condemned it, accusing Jim of using it in order to detract from the fact that he murdered their dad. They launched a website called The Truth About the Artie Fund in order to have a place to put their side of the story out there. While the site has been archived, I did find it on the Wayback Machine. This is what their website said in part. Ever since Artie Mitchell died in 1991, people have been donating money to the Artie Fund, a nonprofit charity that raises funds for Centerpoint Rehabilitation Center in San Rafael, California, and the San Francisco Surf and Rescue Squad. I wonder how many of those people realize that they are actually donating money to cover up the fact that Jim cold-bloodedly murdered his own brother. Our uncle and our father were not nearly as close as people were led to believe. Though they were business partners and brothers, their once tight friendship had deteriorated over the years due to Jim's jealousy, anger, and greed. Have you been duped into believing that Jim is sorry for committing fratricide? Jim created the Artie Fund to deflect attention from how Art Mitchell actually died. From their literature, it sounds like Artie was a man who sadly died of a drug overdose. Never is it mentioned that he was shot to death in his own home. A charity in Art Mitchell's name should raise money to support gun control legislation. While our family will always be grateful to the surf and rescue squad of the San Francisco Fire Department for saving Art, Jim, and our brothers from a near-fatal surfing accident, it is pathetic how that department has allowed their good name to be manipulated to redeem Jim Mitchell. As far as the Centerpoint Rehabilitation Center, they were picked at random simply because it was a rehab center near to the home where Artie was murdered. The Artie Fund's propaganda spouts ridiculous rhetoric along the lines of, had Artie realized his addictions, perhaps he would have sought help at Centerpoint. The Artie Fund donates money to a drug rehabilitation center in order to make it appear that Artie died due to a drug and alcohol-related incident. Artie's drinking had actually nothing to do with his death. Jim murdered Artie because he wanted complete control over the O'Farrell Theater. Jim sought control of all the money and all the power, and he got exactly what he wanted. Jim never wanted his brother to get rehabilitation. That was simply the defense he used at his trial. Jim was not supportive while Art spent 11 of his last days going cold turkey sober, 
trying his best to tackle his alcoholism on his own. Art's oldest child personally implored Jim to help the family do an intervention to get Art help. Jim declined, saying it'd be a pain to do because of their infamous reputations. Murder, it seems, was a better option to him. Jim gives money to the fire department in order to make himself more powerful, and he calls it the Artie Fund in an attempt to make people forget that he murdered Artie. The Artie Fund is Jim's legal way to pay off San Francisco officials. Jim Mitchell killed a man who was loved by all who knew him. Jim Mitchell was already a rich and powerful man, powerful enough to get away with murder, but he wanted more. Our father had six children, ages 8 through 20 at the time that he died. Our uncle has never tried to explain to any of us why he took our father from us, because it's obvious why he did it. Jim planned the murder of Artie long before that night. The Artie Fund is a part of the scheme to make Jim look like he did nothing wrong. The punishment in California for first-degree murder for financial gain is supposed to be life in prison. But due to the incapable DA John Posey, he was only convicted of voluntary manslaughter. Jim had enough connections and money to pretty much get away with it. Even back when Diane Feinstein was the mayor of San Francisco, the Mitchell brothers had all the bigwigs in San Francisco in their pockets. The mayor and the sheriff wrote letters to the judge in Jim Mitchell's favor. He only served three years in San Quentin. Artie wrote his will only 13 days before his death, making Jim primary trustee, never suspecting that Jim would be the one to take his life. Before Jim could be told that he could not be the trustee of his victim's children's money, he assigned the job to his mother, Georgia May Mitchell, and his accountant, Ruby Richardson. Georgia stopped communicating with her grandchildren after Artie's death, and she did whatever Jim told her to do on matters concerning Artie's children's trust. Artie's will bequeathed everything to his six children, but they never received the majority of it. The Mitchell family split up into two separate families. Those who were loyal to Artie stopped communicating with Jim, and those who were greedy went along with Jim, pretending that Art's death had been an accident. Sometimes I feel as if I'm in Hamlet's predicament. Will my father's soul be able to rest if I don't do something about this injustice? Jim killed my father and got away with it. He only served three years for what everyone knows is first-degree murder. He became twice as rich and twice as powerful. He has killed our father and continues to live the leisurely life of a king. He has given our father an unearned, terrible reputation in an attempt to justify his homicidal act. Jim Mitchell was not looking out for his brother the night that he shot and killed him. Jim Mitchell is a heartless, mafioso wannabe, greedy, sick man. He not only killed the party when he killed Artie, he killed our father and best friend, broke our hearts and destroyed our family. I heard a juror say that he didn't think that Jim Mitchell was the type to kill again. He may not be a serial killer, but he is a cold man who does what needs to get done to get what he wants. I had not even reached my teenage years when I lost my faith in the justice system. If you have enough money, you can get away with anything. 
Jim Mitchell proved that long before O.J. Simpson ever did. Please stop donating money to the killer of our father who is using him once again for his own financial gain and public image. If you have any questions, you can email Arts Children. And there are links with each of their names listed at the bottom of the page. Jasmine, Liberty, Ace, Cal, Storm, and Mariah. But none of those links work anymore. On July 12, 2007, paramedics responded to a call originating from Jim Mitchell's Sonoma County home. He was pronounced dead at the scene, and it was later determined to be of a heart attack. Services were held a week later in his childhood hometown of Antioch, California, and he was laid to rest beside his brother. Jim Mitchell was 63 years old. And in a footnote to the story, in July of 2011, Jim's son, 29-year-old James Mitchell, was convicted of first-degree murder for the 2009 beating death of his child's mother, 29-year-old Danielle Keller, with a metal softball bat. James was also convicted of kidnapping, child endangerment, child abduction, domestic violence, and stalking. He was acquitted of the special circumstance of committing a murder during a kidnapping, which would have made him ineligible for parole. According to witnesses, James had barged into Danielle's backyard, who was no longer in a relationship with him at the time, and witnesses watched in horror as he struck her with the bat as she had their daughter in her arms. They were in the middle of celebrating her first birthday. Both mother and baby fell down onto the grass, and while the baby cried, James continued to deal blow after blow to Danielle's head with so much force that her head left an indentation in the grass. He then took the baby and fled in his car, though he was captured a few hours later as law enforcement was able to track his phone. The baby was not hurt and would end up being left in the care of James's mother, Jim's ex-wife, Mary Jane. Today, the Mitchell Brothers O'Farrell Theater, or MBOT for short, is still in operation at the location that was the bastion of the Empire at 895 O'Farrell Street in San Francisco, where it all started 50 years ago this past July 4th. And that brings this episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current crime stories, other news events, TV shows that we enjoy, documentaries we've watched, books that we've read. Whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And as we have been doing, we're going to do our birthday shoutouts for this week. So, happy birthday to Amy P., who's celebrating her birthday on the 10th. 
On the 12th is Liberty G and Julie G. On July 13th is Antonia L. On the 14th, Danielle B. On the 15th, Adam F. and Ronnie L. And on July 16th, Amy W. Happy birthday to all of you. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and talented hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, where you can find all the California Dreaming stuff. And there are a couple of new designs that we've just uploaded. So take a look at those. Get your t-shirt, your mug, or your hoodie. Take a pic and post it in our group or on our Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you just wanted to email us with your feedback, comments, questions, or to just let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. Hi, do you love true crime podcasts but feel like maybe you've heard all there is to know about well-known cases like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and BTK? Or maybe you've watched The Bridge or other Nordic noir crime shows and you're intrigued by Scandinavian gloom. We're Scream, a Scandinavian true crime podcast. Every week, we, that's Lette and Inc., talk about different true crime cases from Scandinavian countries. Cases that might even be new to the most seasoned true crime enthusiasts. If this sounds at all intriguing, look us up on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Scream, spelled S-K-R-I-M.